You are listening to the LifePoint Church Sermon of the Week. For more resources, visit us at lifepoint.cc. It is uh, wonderful to be with all of you. And as I shared with Pastor and the leadership team today, uh, it's your hunger for revival and the fact that you're connected with campus ministry and reaching out to the younger generation that brought me here and uh, trusting that God's going to meet us tonight. Amen? I mean, there's no reason to come together on a Saturday night and no reason for me to fly up here unless God's going to meet us. We have, I, I determined, because I've been in the Lord over 50 years now, that church services without God are really boring, <laughs> especially long ones. Long singing, long preaching. If God's not moving, go home. But if he's moving, wow. Give me your heart, your life, your everything. All right, I just want to mention two things quickly, and then we'll, we'll open the word together and, and see what the Lord wants to say to us. Uh, I've, uh, as a Jewish believer in Jesus, saved in 1971. I was a heroin-shooting, LSD-using, hippie rock drummer when God saved me. And it's been quite an amazing journey ever since. As I was telling the folks today, my wife Nancy didn't know me then. She got saved a couple years after as a hardcore atheist, Jewish atheist. But uh, she saw an old picture of me from before I was saved in my hippie days, and she started laughing. I said, you're laughing because I look like a woman. She said, no, I'm laughing because you look like an ugly woman. (laughs) Uh, if you don't believe that, just put in my name and from LSD to PhD and look for it online and you'll, you'll see an old picture. Um, unfortunately, I didn't have a really good picture right before I got saved because I didn't know I was about to get saved. <laughs> so this is a really lost picture, but I, w- I was really lost. But as a Jewish believer interacting immediately with the rabbis, my dad said, you know, Michael, it's good you're off drugs, but we're Jews, we don't believe this. So he brought me to meet the local rabbi and began to challenge me. That's, that's what led into my studies, my Hebrew studies, my, my PhD in Semitic languages, was just interacting with the rabbis, being challenged in my faith and just wanting truth. So over the years, I've, I've done lots and lots of Jewish ministry. And to this day, interact rabbi, uh, regularly with the religious Jewish community. So when I would go to Israel, I just want to go to minister. And people would say, what about leading a tour? I said, I don't want to lead a tour. I just want to go there and minister. So a few years back, one of my friends convinced me to to do a tour, you know, bring a bus full of people over there. And it was amazing. It was a blast. And it it had an amazing impact. Those that have gone, it's just this uncanny thing what happens when you're there. You know, one of my favorite things is to do a teaching on on Mount Carmel where Elijah called down fire from heaven. (laughs) And to look out over uh, the area that's, that's known as Armageddon, there's just something very intense about it. So we, we've done a few tours. We had one scheduled for 2020. We were bringing a couple of buses of folks over, and then uh, that got canceled, uh, obviously because of pandemic, and rescheduled, rescheduled. We finally dropped it. So we're finally going back, and uh, we have limited amounts of seating. So just these... Wherever I'm going the next uh, month or two, I'm just going to share this again. So if we could just put the QR code up there. Uh, If you take a picture of that with your phone, you will be instantly transported to Israel. (laughs) Oh, no, sorry. That's not what it's for. But if you want to find out about the trip, it's May 2023. 
Just take a picture of that. Otherwise, it's on my website, askdrbrown.org. It's from leaving to coming back, it's about 10 days total. And it's really an extraordinary time. And and we stay at good hotels, but folks, we want to stay at the best hotels. So we're staying at these five-star hotels. So you're really going to rough it. Sacrifice there. But um, grab a picture of that, or otherwise go to the website, askdrbrown.org. Okay, one other thing. Uh, I didn't bring any resources with me. I've, I've written over 40 books, and we've got tons and tons of different resources that are super relevant to the culture we're living in today, uh, to revival in the church, to Jewish ministry, to, uh, well, my newest book. You know, I have a ministry motto, avoid controversy at all costs. That's a joke. That's New York sarcasm. That was a joke, okay? Um, my latest book deals with the, the church and politics, actually, and really tries to weigh in and get God's perspective on it. Um, as one who believes we should be involved, but it's called The Political Seduction of the Church, How Millions of American Christians Have Confused Politics with the Gospel. And this is from someone who believes we should be involved and should make a difference, but there's God's way and the world's way. Um, so I didn't, I didn't bring any resources with me, but we want to make them available to you at a discount online. So we'll just put up that one other slide. So if you want to order any of our materials, just use the code LIFE15, all right? And you get a 15% discount. How long is that for? I guess through the weekend, maybe, maybe till Monday, I think. So anything you want to order. You want to get Christmas presents for people. You want to order videos, DVDs, whatever. Whatever you want to get. Uh, just use that code the next few days, and you get 15% off. And as a Jewish man, that's a big discount. That's a lot. I'm allowed to say that. If you said it, it would be inappropriate, but I'm, I'm allowed to say it. All right, so, and, and um, if you don't get my emails, uh, I normally write five or six new articles every week dealing with what's happening in the world around us and how we as believers can navigate things. Dealing with the most controversial issues that people don't want to touch. We're really facing them and trying to work our way through these things. And then I've got a live daily radio broadcast, The Line of Fire, where I serve as your voice for moral sanity and spiritual clarity. So we have literally thousands of hours of free resources. We have our Jewish outreach website, and debates with rabbis and debates with gay activists and Uh, agnostic professors and all kinds of things. And it's all available free on my website. So we've got a lot of free resources. Uh, You can go to the website, askdrbrown.org, A-S-K-D-R-Brown.org. Sign up for our emails. This way every week you'll know, here are the latest articles, here are the latest videos, and you can just see what's relevant and helpful for you. All right? So with that, let's, let's pray together. Thank you, Abba. Lord, I thank you for this precious congregation. I thank you, Lord, for their desire for you. Lord, in worship, you heard our hearts. You can tell the genuineness of what's being said here, Lord. There's no hype. There's no show that's being put on. You know my heart, God. We want to meet with you. We want to hear from you. Not just another message, not just another service. Share your heart with us. Give us ears to hear what your spirit is saying. Give us a heart to respond, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to start with you in the book of Jude, right at the end of the New Testament, 
before the book of Revelation, and then I want to read some passages from the book of Acts. Title of tonight's message is Who Changed Things? Who Changed Things? So Jude, or as his name would have been pronounced, Judah, another Jewish disciple, he says this in verse three. Now remember, this is in New Testament times. This is within decades of the death and resurrection of Jesus. He says, dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. So even in the beginning, there were challenges. Even in the beginning, there were counterfeits. Even in the beginning, there were people who were going in the wrong direction and leading others astray. And he said, I I wanted to write you and talk about the common faith we enjoy, but instead I needed to write to say, fight for this common faith. For certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. And then for the rest of his short letter, words of warning and a call to perseverance. Go with me to Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16. And I want to take a glimpse with you in the early church and see what things looked like back then. I remember as a kid in school that there was a a trip. It was probably eighth, ninth grade, probably eighth grade before going into ninth. So end of middle school before going into high school. And I had heard about this trip. It was before I'd gotten into my drug days, before the, the party rebellious time. So I was just pretty much a good kid. And go on this trip. And I'd heard all these stories about it. And students would get drunk and they'd get into trouble, and they'd get involved in all this mischief. And I happened to be rooming with a bunch of other kids who were like me. We weren't the troublemakers, we weren't the drug users, we weren't getting into fights, we we listened to the teachers. And the trip was really boring. And at the end of the trip, I remember asking, well, I guess our trip was different. Well, no, I was with the good guys that didn't do the bad stuff. All the stuff was happening, but I remember it had this whole description of what we were supposed to expect. None of that happened. Okay, that was, that was bad stuff. But, but a lot of times when I, when I read the description in the Bible about the good stuff, about the things that are expected to happen, and then I look around, you wonder, well, well where is that? Well, well, what happened? So in Acts 16, Paul and Silas are ministering in Philippi, There is a demonized slave girl who through her demonic power tells fortunes, predicts the future. And Paul drives the spirit out of her so that she can no longer do what she was doing and they can't make their money. So it says that the owners of this slave girl, verse 20, brought them before the magistrates, so brought them before the city leaders and said, these men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. 
Now, on the one hand, that was a lie. Yes, they were Jews, but they were not being troublemakers. They were just preaching the gospel and driving out demons and healing the sick. On the other hand, preaching the gospel and driving out demons and healing the sick is a threat to the kingdom of darkness. It is a direct assault and a direct challenge. In the gospels, when Jesus was accused of driving out demons and healing the sick by the power of Satan, the reason he was accused of doing it by the power of Satan was because he was actually doing it. Do you hear what I'm saying? If he was not healing the sick and driving out demons, they would not accuse him of healing the sick and driving out demons by the power of Satan. There may be a church in your community that doesn't believe in healing the sick, that doesn't believe Jesus rose from the dead, that just believes the Bible has these nice religious traditions, well, no one's accusing them of healing the sick and raising the dead by the power of Satan because they're not healing the sick and they're not raising the dead. Something had to be happening for for this to be going on. No one is going to a a nursing home in your city and gathering together the folks in in their wheelchairs and walkers and saying, are you the ones disturbing our city? Are you the ones behind all this gang activity? No, obviously not. They're they're not inspecting the wheelchairs for for skid marks. No. (laughs) Something has to be happening. There has to be some threat to the kingdom of darkness for this pushback against them. If they had not driven the demon out of this girl, everything would have been okay. Good business for the kingdom of God means bad business for the kingdom of Satan. Something here was being threatened. When you get to the 17th chapter of Acts, there are troublemaking Jews that come from uh, in Thessalonica that are stirring up opposition to Paul. But look at what happens. Verse six, they're, they're looking for Paul and Silas and others. When they did not find them, They dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials shouting, these men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here and Jason has welcomed them to his house. They're all defying Caesar's decree saying that there's another king, one called Jesus. Well, on the one hand, they weren't stirring up trouble everywhere and they were not overtly telling people don't follow Caesar, but in point of fact, they were shaking things up wherever they went. The reason for the false accusation was because they were turning things upside down. The reason for the false accusation because ultimately you could not say Caesar is Lord if Jesus is Lord. You couldn't sacrifice to Caesar if you only honored the Lord. And and, and this happens throughout the book of Acts. When you get to Acts the 19th chapter, there's a riot in the city. Why? Because the idol worshipers are losing their income. So many people are coming to faith in Jesus that they're throwing away their idols and they're they're repenting of their witchcraft and other things like that, and it's hurting business. There was a pastor some years ago in Colombia that got shot, actually shot five times, miraculously survived. But, But the reason he was shot was the drug lords went after him because so many drug dealers were getting saved. And so many prostitutes that were on drugs were were getting saved. And so many drug dealers were getting saved that they tried to shut the thing down. God's kingdom moving will always be a threat to the kingdom of darkness. We are called to be peacemakers, not troublemakers. But if we really follow Jesus, it'll be a threat to the kingdom of darkness. John Wimber, who was greatly used some years back, in terms of bringing the gifts and power of the Spirit to 
traditional churches ministering on healing and spiritual warfare, I'd heard his testimony. He had been the manager, I believe, of a, of a group then called the Righteous Brothers. Some of you that are older remember that name. They weren't exactly righteous. That was just the, the name. It was not a Christian group. And he comes to faith at a Bible study. So all he knows is he's reading the Bible and he's at this Bible study. He's reading the Bible and he's with these other believers. But he hasn't gone to a church service yet. So a friend invites him. Hey, why don't you come to church with me? Well, he can't wait to actually see how they do it. And he goes to the service and meets the pastor before the service. And then when the service begins, the pastor goes to pray, our father. And he turns to his friend, John Wimber turns to his friend and says, what happened to his voice? <laughs> suddenly everything was different. Hey, nice to meet you. Our father. He says, what? What's going on? He was not used to kind of the religious style. And he enjoyed the service. I mean, they sang and, and, and good message. And John Wimber's kind of waiting. I think he goes to another service. And, and then after he's, he says to his friend, so when do they do it? I said, what do you mean? He said, when do they do it? He said, do what? He said, you know what Jesus said. Go heal the sick, go drive out demons. When did I divide the city up? Okay, you go here, you go here. And the guy said, we don't do that, we just talk about it. <laughs> so I, I, I just have a simple question. Yes, I've got some good education behind me and I've done a lot of research, studied the scriptures for many years, written commentaries, done many debates, but in the end, I'm, I'm a real bread and butter, simple believer. I, I mean, I, I just really try to honor what's written and, and not figure out a way to get out of what's written. And, and if what I'm experiencing does not line up with what's written, if what you're experiencing doesn't line up with what's written, you don't change what's written. You, you don't bring down the Bible to suit your experience. Instead, you, you, you say, Lord, lift me up to your standard. Better to preach that the word is true and we're all doing something wrong than to bring God down to our level. So, simple question, who changed things? Just grab a couple of notes here and, and we'll have these on slides for you. Who changed things from the vibrant, spirit-empowered, by life or death faith of the New Testament to today's spineless, home and garden, Sunday morning religion? I'm just wondering, how did that happen? Because a lot of what we see in the Church of America today and the church in the West does not line up with Scripture. It's not much of a threat to the devil. It's not much of a threat to the kingdom of darkness, and no one's going to be accusing a lot of our American Christians today of turning the world upside down. Who changed things? Who changed things from leave everything and follow me, the words of Jesus, to Pray this little prayer, and you're set for eternity. Where did that standard change? Who discovered this simple little trick to tell people just say simple words and that's it, without a change of heart, without a change of life? But didn't Jesus say in Matthew 7, 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father? Who, who changed that? Who cut that out of the Bible? Who changed things from all who live godly lives in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution, 
2 Timothy 3.12, to ask Jesus into your heart and enjoy a comfortable life. I've said for years now that the American gospel says this is who I am, this is how I feel, and God is here to please me. The biblical gospel is this is who God is, this is how he feels, and we are here to please him. Listen, I know there are many new believers that, that little by little by little will grow in the Lord and we're patient with him and we're compassionate and we, we give him space. But it always strikes me as odd when you hear from one of the most worldly, sinful, overtly, fleshly people you know and they begin to talk about their Christian testimony and how they've been saved for years and years. If you're shocked to hear that someone is a Christian, something's wrong. I don't mean you're shocked because they used to be this and now they're this. Praise God for those changes. I mean you're shocked because that's the last person in the world you'd think was saved. I saw some video. Here's a guy that had recently gotten saved, you know, famous singer, entertainer. And he's so into it, he's got an album with songs about the Lord. And he starts off his show and he's got a guy come on the stage in a robe and, you know, that's supposed to be, you know, representing Jesus. And that's how into it he is. And then the video starts, what's up, mother effers? That's it's like, something doesn't line up there. And he didn't say it in the abbreviated way. Well, I'm not saying that's the end of the world, that's the worst possible sin, but I'm saying something doesn't line up. The new Jesus, the, the modern Jesus is here to make us feel better. It used to be that we sang about amazing grace and realized that we were wretched sinners. Now I've seen evangelism teams go out in the streets and tell sinners, you're amazing. God wants you to know how amazing you are. No, he wants you to know how lost you are. There's an amazing future in him. He wants you to know how lost you are so you can understand how amazing his grace is. Who changed things from a fearless proclamation of the truth, whatever the cost or consequences, to a watered-down, compromised message that is afraid to offend anyone? 2004, God began to lay it on my heart that, that I needed to begin to address issues having to do with, with gay activism in our society. And at the same time, I knew to have God's heart that it couldn't just be issues, it had to be people. God began to break my heart for the individuals with a real, with a real love for those who struggle with same-sex attraction in the years following. As, as the transgender issues became bigger, those that struggle with, with gender identity confusion, to this day, my heart breaks for people. I care for people. At the same time, I see what's happening in our society. I see how kids and young people are being influenced. I, I've talked to pastors of leading churches that will not touch this subject with a 10-foot pole because they don't want to offend. And I said to him, forget the culture wars. Minister to the people in your church. Minister to the, we get the letters. We hear from the moms and the dads. We hear from the, the young people. If I, if I ever address the subject, if I'm asked to speak at a church and, and, and deal with issues of sexuality and things like that, when the service is over, there's a long line of people waiting to talk to me, many of them weeping. Oh, but we can't touch it because it's too controversial. What in the world does that have to do with following Jesus? There was a major institution I was trying to help 
in some ways and said, hey, listen, I, I want to make myself available to do some lectures and things like that. My schedule's full, but I'd like to help. And then it kind of went nowhere. And I was not looking for anything more to do. I just was trying to be of service. So one of my colleagues just told me a couple of weeks ago, he said, by the way, I found out what happened. They love you. They respect you. They love what you write. They love what you put out. But they were concerned that if they have you involved with their institution, it'll put a target on their back from LGBTQ activists. This is a Christian institution. I said, if there's not a target on their back, something's wrong. I don't mean because we're being nasty or provocatory or self-righteous or condemning, but simply because we stand for the truth and we say that God's ways are best. Who changed things? By what authority? By whose decree? Based on what new revelation? have we so blatantly departed from the faith of the apostles? Who changed things? Who changed things from the New Testament faith where even the disciples couldn't minister without the Spirit's endowment to today's version where whole ministries are run with hardly evidence and hardly any evidence of the Spirit's work? As A.W. Tozer once said, if the Holy Spirit was withdrawn from the church today, 95% of what we do would go on and no one would know the difference. If the Holy Spirit had been withdrawn from the New Testament church, 95% of what they did would stop and everybody would know the difference. And this remains true of most of the contemporary church in the West. Years ago, I began to ask a question. At your church growth seminars, do you do a session on multiplication by martyrdom, the key to church growth? I work with all kinds of different churches. Some of them are mega churches and, and have amazing programs and amazing buildings and they're reaching people and people are being touched. And I work with persecuted church where you, only a few can gather together at a time, otherwise they're gonna get persecuted or killed. And we've laid hands on people, sent them out. Graduate from our ministry school, martyred by Al-Qaeda a few years ago. Spiritual son of ours. And then ministering in India on a regular basis. We've laid hands on many people, sent them out to minister. Probably at least five of them have been martyred. I, I know the realities of this. Work with churches in all kinds of different settings. And I'm not, I'm not talking about a form where it has to be like this. It has to be little. It has to be big. It has to be loud. It has to be soft. I'm not talking about any of that. I'm talking about where's the evidence of God in our midst? Because you can have a good program. You can grow a social media following. You can get a network of people. You can have an audience. That doesn't mean lives are being changed. It doesn't mean disciples are being made. Jesus said in the parable of the sower that the seed that falls on shallow ground will quickly produce trees, harvest, fruit. Plants will grow. It looks good. But because the roots are shallow, he said when trouble and testing come because of the word, then they're going to quickly fade away. My question is, what if trouble and testing don't come for years? You can have all kinds of false conversions and shallow conversions, and they're not tested, but when they're tested, they're going to disappear. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 3 that our work will be tested, speaking in particular of those who are preaching the gospel. Our work will be tested, and everything will be tested by fire. 
and that which is made of wood, hay, and stubble will burn up. That which is made of gold, silver, precious stones will remain. Remember Leonard Ravenhill, saintly old man of God, saying to me, Mike, wood, hay, and stubble, they're found in abundance over the earth. It's gold, silver, precious stones are hidden. Who changed things from a, a God-centered faith to a man-centered faith, from take up your cross and deny yourself to bypass the cross and empower yourself. Over 50 years ago, Tozer wrote an incredible essay on the old cross versus the new. You can readily find it online. And he said, whereas the old cross slays the sinner, the new cross redirects the sinner. A few years ago, I thought that needed further updating. Whereas the old cross slays the sinner, the modern cross empowers the sinner. That's the way we preach it. Jesus died to make you into a bigger and better you. Jesus died so you could fulfill your dreams. No, Jesus died so we could die to sin, die to our way, die to our flesh, and now live new lives in God. We can fulfill his dream and purpose for our lives. There's a big difference. I mean, think at the end of John's gospel, Jesus tells Peter how he's going to die. He's going to die by crucifixion. And according to tradition, when it was time for him to be crucified, he said, I'm not worthy to die the same way my Lord did and was crucified upside down, which prolongs the agony even more. But, but the remarkable thing is this. It, it, it says, it says in John 21, that Jesus said this to Peter about his crucifixion to signify by what death he would glorify God. In other words, it was already a given you're gonna glorify God by death. Just by which death? Our second trip to India, been there 27 times now, our second trip to India in 1994, we had 10 people with us, my wife Nancy and I, and eight others. There were a few actually that were Indians from America, everyone else just uh, native-born American. And it was a challenging trip. We were there for several weeks, very, very hot, long days, new foods. So almost everybody got sick one day or another. And we were in a city, I'd been there the previous year, we had about 5,000 people in the night meetings. I, I would teach pastors in the daytime. The team would go out and to do village evangelism. And, and then at night, meetings with maybe 5,000 people. We had powerful meetings the year before. But this year, it's like we hit a wall. So I, I gathered the team together. I was going to be very pastoral. I was going to be very gentle. And I said, hey, listen. I said, I know it's hot. I know it's really hard out there during the day. I know we've been sick. But do you think after the meeting tonight, we'll have our meal, and then no breakfast, no lunch, and then we won't eat until after the meeting tomorrow night, just 24 hours to fast, because we, we got to break through in the city, and we haven't broken through yet. I said, what if, I know it's hard, but 24 hours, could we do it? So we'll eat tonight, then I'll tell them no breakfast, no lunch. Of course, take liquids with you when you're out in the villages. And then we'll eat after the service tomorrow night. Can we do that? They all nodded. Yeah, okay. So I told the brother that we work with there, and I said, listen, we just feel we need to break through here, so we're going to skip breakfast, lunch tomorrow. We won't eat until after the service tomorrow night. And he says, good idea. And he turns to his team. 
He says, no food until we break through. And they just nod. I'm thinking that's the difference between his disciples and our disciples. That's, could it be, could we, would it be all right? I know it's hard, it's hot. The one, 24 hour, yeah, we'll do it. No food till we break. They didn't like, no food. There's no reaction. Not, well, how long is that? Or what if it takes a week? Or what? Nobody. No food till we break through. That's it. Simple. Why? They were disciples. I remember during that trip, we were about to go out on 17 days of ministry from the home base, and it was constant travel, travel through the night and speaking all day and ministry and very rigorous, very intense schedule and some challenging areas we were going to be going into. And getting ready to go, we have a service, I don't know, maybe a couple hundred people in this long, long hut that they were meeting under. And, and the kids in the children's home, the orphans, maybe about 75 kids, starting around age three up to around 15. At one point, the pastor says, all right, let's pray for this trip as we travel out. And I don't know what's being said except for their naming the cities that we're going to and praying for souls. And these kids get on their knees and begin to pray. Everybody gets on their knees. And they're, they're on the dirt floor praying. And as they're praying, we're looking around, they're little kids and tears start streaming down their cheeks. And everyone's praying, every eye closed, praying, crying out. So the service ended and I went over to talk to our team. I knew exactly what they were thinking. I said, what's going on, guys? Some of them said, why are we here? What do we have to offer these people? What are we bringing? Why are we even here? And the others said, if they're saved, we're not. Because if that's the gospel, with five-year-old kids praying with tears for the lost, then we're not even saved. Now, of course, they were saved and they were serious about God, but there was a whole other level that when they saw that, they realized something's missing. Something's missing. So my question is, who changed things? Just grab my notes again here. By the way, when you have a technical issue and you're Baptist, it's just a technical issue. When you're Pentecostal charismatic, it's demons. <laughs> I think this was just my finger hit the wrong thing. Who changed things from holiness being beautiful to holiness being bondage? From the early church being known for its high standards to the contemporary church being known for its scandals. You know, Jesus said in John 13 that the world will know that we're his followers by the love we have one for another. And some of you who are old enough remember this, this hymn, it was kind of a chant. They will know we are Christians by our love, by our love. After the last election cycle, the way we treated each other, I wrote a new version of that. An article called, They Will Know We Are Christians By Our Hate By Our Hate. We're as divided and worldly as anybody. And when you preach holiness, oh no, that's legalism, that's bondage. Even seeing people, worship leaders, Christian leaders, they show off their spirituality by using profanity and getting drunk to show how free they are. Think what kind of madness is that? 
Jesus doesn't set us free to sin. He sets us free from sin. Who changed things from the people of God being a threat to the powers of darkness to the people of God being active participants in darkness? In the early church, Paul instructed the Corinthians to separate themselves from people who claimed to be believers but were living in outward unrepentant sin, 1 Corinthians 5. Today, some of those people lead our churches and preach from our pulpits. Who changed things? Who changed things from a faith that was so focused on the life of Jesus and so infused with the reality of his death and resurrection that no sacrifice was considered too great, no active service considered too extreme. To the contrary, suffering for him was considered a privilege to today's convenience store Christianity where we have to sell salvation to the sinner by spicing up the deal with perks and benefits. You ever seen one of those TV commercials? You know, there's this, get this knife that slices and dices and so on. And if you'll order now, that will throw in, you know, and they keep throwing in something else and call now. And instead of four payments, you only make three and call now and free shipping. And then you finally say, oh, I'll call, I'll, I'll order it. That's what we do with the gospel. Hey, it'll only take a minute. Just, just come and say these words. And then what do I get? You get eternal life, cool. You prosper in your business, cool. If you go down the list, it's like, that sounds like a good deal. I'll try it out. That's not salvation. That's not the gospel. One Indian brother years ago said, you know, in America, we tell people, if you're having business problems, come to Jesus and he'll fix your business. Many times he does. He helps. Some of you were bankrupt. The Lord came in your lives and your business took off. We tell them, you know, if you're, if you're married, you're having marital problems, come to Jesus and he'll fix your marriage. Well, that does happen in many cases. And if you're having family problems, come to Jesus and he'll fix your families. Many times that's the case. He said, we have to preach it differently in India. We have to tell them if you come to Jesus and you have a job, you may lose your job. If you come to Jesus and you're married, your spouse may leave you. If you come to Jesus, you have a family, your kids may disown you. What would the American response be? Well, then why come to Jesus? Doesn't make good business sense. But when you realize you're lost, when you realize that you're worthy of judgment, when you realize that you've sinned against a holy God and there's no way out, and you find out that salvation is available, that, that the Son of God died to take your place, as we sang, living a perfect life, dying a sinner's death, and that mercy is available. Now, you come running. Have mercy on me. And then he says, okay, my plan for you is sell everything you have. Go be a missionary to the lost. Thank you, Lord. What a privilege. When did Jesus stop being enough? When did obedience become an option? I've been saved now, it's going on 51 years. God has not yet asked me for my opinion. He's not yet said we have several choices. Which would you prefer? You can be popular, loved, make a lot of money. You can be hated, rejected. You could have death threats. What would you like? When did keeping God's commandments out of love for him become religious in the negative sense of the word? Didn't Jesus say if we loved him, we would keep his commandments? John 14, verses 15 and 21. Who changed things? Look, if we belong to another religion that claimed to have other books that supplemented the Bible or traditions that superseded it, that would be one thing. 
but we don't. We believe the scriptures alone are God's word and that nothing that comes after the scriptures, no tradition, no alleged revelation, no consensus can undermine or countermand the written word of God. So who changed things from the biblical version of the Jesus faith to the modern American version? If we were Mormons, we'd say, well, we have the Book of Mormon and, and, and the church leadership or Jehovah's Witnesses. Well, we have, we have organizations teaching. If I was a traditional Jew, I'd have the Old Testament, but I'd see it all through the light of Jewish tradition. If I was Catholic, I'd have the, the Bible and Catholic tradition. But we are simple Bible believers, which means this is it. And any, any prophecy or revelation that comes after has to be tested by this. So which church group changed it? By what authority? How did it happen? We can debate church history. We can blame this group or that group. We can point out what's wrong with this denomination and that denomination. We might even have some great historical and contemporary insights. But unless we get back to believing what is written and acting on what is written, will continue to perpetuate the merry-go-round Christianity with lots of noise and action and bells and whistles, but with little authority, little purity, and little effect, if any. I didn't get the memo that God's word and spirit were not enough. And I'm far more concerned with what he says than with what the latest polls say. Really now, since when did the Lord command us to fashion our preaching and our style of worship and even the way we look based on what's trending? Has the Spirit spoken anything to you, Pastor? No, but I can tell you what's trending. Where'd that come from? So many times we want to be relevant that we're no longer changing lives. Sometimes the most relevant thing you can do is ignore what's happening in the world and just say what God says and people will come running. It reminds me of this little cartoon that I once saw in a magazine. I was reading decades ago. And it was, it was three pizzerias all in the same block next to each other. It's Mario's Pizzeria, finest pizza in the universe. And had like two people going in. And the other side, Gino's Pizzeria, finest pizza in the world. Had like four people going in. And in the middle, Irving's Pizzeria, finest pizza on the block and everybody <laughs> pouring in there. If some church leaders choose to trust in worldly business models and carnal consulting firms, that's their choice. I say that we go with the power of the name of Jesus and the wisdom of the word of God and the fullness of the spirit. I say that we go with the New Testament model applied with boldness and with compassion to the needs of the day. For years, years, I had believed if we will just do things God's way, if we will give ourselves unconditionally to him, if we will seek him earnestly, if we'll preach the truth of the gospel without compromise, if we'll just let the spirit move, God will back it. God will back it. And then he called me to serve in the midst of the Brownsville revival from 96 to 2000. So I'm an eyewitness to what happened for years. So I was sharing with leaders today, I mean, imagine the scene where for years, the lines begin forming outside your church building at 6 a.m. And the reason it's 6 a.m. is because the, the church has said, we don't want you getting online before 6 a.m. 
until we have security there. Because people would leave the services at night, get something to eat, then get in their sleeping bag right on the concrete, out in the elements, two, three in the morning, so they could be the first to get in the building to get a seat. Think of lines forming at 6 a.m. for the doors to open at 6 p.m., for the service to start at 7 p.m., to then go to midnight, one in the morning, and people flocking from around the world. Only they have some preacher get in their face and tell them to get the sin out of their lives. But they encountered God, and they get set free. And, and to this day, as I travel around the world, someone comes up to me, all excited. They have to tell me their testimony. They're burning bright, how they got touched there 25 years ago. I was just ministering in Las Vegas. One of my grads is an associate pastor of a church there. And he'd been wanting me to come. Finally, we were able to work it out and get there. We're sitting having lunch, and pastor and his wife hadn't arrived yet, so I'm just sharing some stories and things, and pastor and his wife arrived. They could tell I was in the middle of something, but he interrupted. He said, I've been waiting 25 years to tell you my story. How he came, how he was transformed, how God got hold of him, and the supernatural things that happened. I always believed that. Believed if we would honor God and not try to please people. Yes, we serve people. We love people. We give ourselves to people. Not try to please people. Just try to please God. Not hold back the truth. You know, the great economist Thomas Sowell said, when we care about other people, we tell them the truth. When we care about ourselves, we tell them what they want to hear. Boom. That hits home. We tell the truth. When we tell people, no, you're not just sick, you're dying without God. But with him, everything can change. When we're not ashamed of the moving of the Holy Spirit, when we let his power fall, go ahead and let the world mock it, but let God be God. If we would just do that, he would back it. I saw that confirmation with my own eyes. I've seen it around the world. I say that we go with the New Testament model applied with boldness and with compassion to the needs of the day. Years ago, Leonard Ravenhill said, one of these days, some simple soul will pick up the book of God, read it, and believe it. Then the rest of us will be embarrassed. I want, I want to be that simple soul. How about you? What I'm saying is, we go back to the word, we go back to God, and we start reading it as if it's true. We start reading it saying, okay, I see this, but my life doesn't resemble it. Lord, what do I do? Not condemned, not put off by it, but Lord, what do I do? I'm 67, but feel very young at heart, full of life, energy, vision. In so many ways, with all that I've seen all around the world, outside of the US over 200 different times, and seen amazing things around the world, generations of ministry students I've poured into that are out serving God, all the years of the Browns revival, outpourings I've seen in other places, debates I've had, the campus outreaches, the things I've seen that are enough for multiple lifetimes, I still feel like I'm just getting started. I still feel like I haven't seen anything yet. But hear me, friends. It is true that we, we only get one crack at it. It is true in the, the words of the missionary C.T. Studd, only one life will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. I keep going back to God. And if the Lord came to me in a vision 
or in a dream and said to me, son, I want you to know you have seen the very best that I have to offer. You have seen the fullness of my glory. You have seen the greatest things you will ever see. Boy, that would bum me out. Despite everything I've seen, despite the staggering stuff I've seen God do with my own eyes, if the best was behind me, I think, how could that be? If the Lord came and said to me, you are now operating at 99.9% of your spiritual capacity, I'd think, no, it can't be. If he came and said, you've just gone, you've just hit 7% of your capacity, I'd say, yes, come on. On the one hand, that's, that's a little discouraging, but on the other hand, there is so much more. Plus, that's about my wife's evaluation anyway. <laughs> what I'm telling you is not condemning, not negative. It's an invitation. It's an invitation. There's more. And, and, and look, we lost people during COVID. One of the, the losses, just talking to a friend moments ago, right before the service. Dear friend of ours, a student of mine in the 80s and then a lifelong friend. What, he was 50, 55 or 56 when we lost him. End of last year or beginning of this year. And it, it makes no sense. I don't believe it was the right thing. It just, in other words, I, I, my doctoral dissertation was on the Hebrew word for healing because I had so many questions about it and, and I, did, I didn't agree with so much charismatic Pentecostal teaching. I just had to study the Bible myself because the people that had the wrong theology seemed to have the miracles and people like me with the right theology didn't have the miracles. I thought something's not lining up here. So I switched my doctoral dissertation. I dug in and I, 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 st I still believe in healing even when I don't see it happen because I see promises. And, and, and when I see believers up and down and up and down and up and down and up and down and never getting free and, and, and never getting to that place of living in consistent obedience, I don't condemn them, but I know it's not supposed to be like this. And, and, and when our witness seems to produce no opposition from the world, no, I'm not trying to start trouble. I'm not gonna be obnoxious. I want, to, I want any neighbor that knows me or anyone that works around me or anyone that travels with me, I want them to think that I'm a very gracious, loving, kind person. Not some nasty, obnoxious, self-righteous hypocrite. And yet I know that the gospel stirs up opposition. I know that just living for Jesus and shining light will create hatred in the realm of darkness. So I, I say what God says, there's more. And I'm gonna close here, give you an opportunity just to get before the Lord and spend some time with him. And then we'll be back tomorrow morning and I strongly encourage you, go to my website, listen, there are messages, all kinds of stuff you can listen to for free, watch for free, read for free. Get some of the resources that'll take you deeper. My, my recent book, Revival or We Die, will take you deeper. But simple invitation. If in your heart you are convinced that there's more, if in your heart you're convinced that what we're living and seeing is, is not lining up with the word, there's an invitation from God to say, well, draw near to me and I'll draw near to you. And I tell you this, if I was the wealthiest man in the world and put all the current multi-billionaires to shame and I made you a really nice dinner with some hamburgers and fries, I don't eat that stuff anymore, but if, if I did, and, and 
I made you a really nice dinner. And you say, well, I cannot believe this dinner. I, I mean, this is the most amazing dinner. I, obviously, you couldn't do any better than this. That would be an insult to me. If you said, that's a good dinner, but I get this for five bucks down the street. I thought you were richer than this. Like, good, good. I, yeah, you haven't seen anything. Now I'm going to take you in my personal jet over to my favorite restaurant over, you know. When you, when you say, God, there must be more, that's not an insult to him. That's a compliment. That's honoring him. Stand your feet with me. My daily live radio show, I, I take questions all the time and get asked all kinds of theological questions, perplexing questions, linguistic questions, all this. They don't trouble me. I, I, I can't remember the last time a question stumped me or troubled me. You know the ones that trouble me? When a kid calls, 10 years old. I don't understand it. It says this in the Bible and we pray and it didn't happen. That's the hard one because they're just believing it and something's not lining up and I have to tell them there's more. And even though that didn't happen, it should happen. So let's keep praying until it does happen. So what's the one thing that we can offer ourselves? Lord, here I am. Send me, use me. Here I am, send me, use me. Holding back nothing from God. He'll hold back nothing from us. It's like the guy went across Niagara Falls on a tightrope, pushing a wheelbarrow. He said to the crowd, how many believe I can do this? They weren't sure. So he went all the way across and wheeled out on the tightrope, came back to the other side. He said, how many believe I can do it again? All their hands went up, waving. He said, how many trust me? Waving, he says, get in the wheelbarrow. That's what God's saying, like, get in the wheelbarrow. Your whole life, everything you have, whoever you are, whatever your future, your whole life, here I am, Lord. Send me, use me. Start afresh. Then every day, just keep going after him. And he, he will change you. He will meet you. If that's you, if you want to get in that wheelbarrow, your whole life given over to him, whatever the cost, whatever the consequence, whatever his purpose, a fresh surrender, come on up and let's just worship him and pray together. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Lord God. Here I am, send me, use me. Here I am, send me, use me. Lord, I've fallen short here. I've struggled in the flesh here. I've made promises I haven't kept. Lord, but... Right now, I'm saying, here I am with all that I am, with all that I have. Here I am. Send me, use me. Whatever that means, whatever the demands, here I am. Lord, out of my weakness, manifest your strength. Out of my unbelief, manifest the power of your faith. Out of my fleshly struggles, manifest the glory of your spirit. Here I am. Send me, use me. This has been the LifePoint Church Sermon of the Week. For more resources, visit us at lifepoint.cc.